Welcome to a new episode of Mediterranean Sustainability Partners. I'm your host, Ellen Wasselina. In this episode, I have the pleasure and privilege of interviewing Ambassador Omar Samad. Ambassador Samad will talk to me about uh, three segments in this interview as follows. Past lessons learned or not in Afghanistan. In the second segment, the rough transition period and what's at stake. And finally, in the third segment, you'll talk to us about the way forward and choices opportunities and region and great power roles. Here is a short bio of Ambassador Samad. Omar Samad is a non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's South Asia Center. He is also the founder and president of Silk Road Consulting LLC. Prior to joining to the Atlantic Council, Samad was a senior Afghan expert in residence with the Center for Conflict Management at the U.S. Institute of Peace from January 2012 to January 2013. He also served as ambassador of Afghanistan to France from 2009 to 2011 and ambassador to Canada from 2004 to 2009. Samad was the former spokesperson for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Kabul and director general information and media divisions from 2001 to 2004. He also served as an advisor and speechwriter to the foreign minister and as a member of the ministry's reform committee. Throughout the 1980s and 1990s, he advocated for freedom and democracy in Afghanistan. As founder of the Afghanistan Information Center, in 1996, he launched Azadi Afghan Radio and its website based in Virginia. He has been a contributor to Afghan and international media since the 1980s and is published in the United States, Canada, Europe, and Afghanistan. He's a founding member and advisor to the online platform Afghan Analytica and a member of the U.S. Afghan Women's Council on the advisory boards of the Kitson, the Fletcher School's Men Asa Advisory Group, the Afghan Higher Education Student e-mentoring program, an initiative to educate Afghan women. Samad holds an MA in International Affairs from Tufts University. He is fluent in English, French, and Dari Farsi and proficient in Pashto. I hope you enjoy this episode and thank you for tuning in to Mediterranean Sustainability Partners in 57 countries and five continents. Welcome to a new episode of Mediterranean Sustainability Partners. I'm your host, Ellen Wasseline, and I am so pleased and privileged to be joined today by Ambassador Omar, Omar Samad. Omar, how are you today? Good morning. Uh, bonjour. Salam alaikum, Ellen. Uh, very happy to be with you. Uh, 
uh, I will say a few words to my Afghan compatriots. Uh, please. Please. So, we'll continue in English as discussed, and I'd just like to introduce the subjects that we're going to be talking about today in these three segments. In the first segment, as agreed, uh, we will talk about the past lessons learned or not in Afghanistan. In the second segment, we'll talk about the rough transition period and what's at stake. And finally, in the third segment, the way forward and choices, opportunities, and regions and great powers role. Uh, Ambassador Cheromar, Excellence, uh, I'm so privileged that you're joining us today. Could you jump right in? I know there's a lot of subjects that are current and that you're dealing with and you're aware of that maybe some of our audience or listeners in 57 countries and five continents may not know. So. Uh, let's start with the first segment, past lessons learned or not in Afghanistan with this pullout uh, last August. Um, what, what's what's on the agenda and what, what are you seeing, what are you hearing? Well, um, it's a great question, Ellen. I think that uh, the fact that there are lessons learned and uh, for us Afghans, it's a question of also what lessons uh, have we not learned or are in the process of learning. And I want to sort of divide up the past into three segments without going too far back into sure. our history. Uh, and, and I do this because I think there's something to learn from each of these three segments. Segment one, I think, is uh, maybe the independence and post-independence period of the early 20th century, uh, starting around 1919-1920s. Uh, and mm -hmm. then stretch it all the way to the first and second military coup d'etats of the 1970s. And then obviously what happens uh, thereafter is segment two, um, all the way to the Western US NATO intervention in Afghanistan in 2001, post 9-11. So mm -hmm. lessons learned, and I'm hoping uh, that Afghans and others who have been involved in Afghanistan, whether they're in our region or whether they are away and far from our region uh, and who have an interest in Afghanistan or have had an interest, whether it's a geopolitical interest or whether it's a geoeconomic interest or just an issue of great power rivalries uh, or just, uh, you know, even simpler than that, the fact that Afghanistan has been and continues to be a victim of its geography. Uh, mm -hmm. which sometimes does not have to be political or geopolitical, just the mm -hmm. sheer fact that it's situated in such a sensitive part of the world. Just looking at the map, you see Central Asia, what used to be the USSR, what is now also somewhat still under the influence of Russia in the north. You have a bit of Afghanistan touching China to the east. You have a large chunk of southern and eastern Afghanistan bordering the tribal Pashtun regions that separate us and Pakistan. And then on the 
Western flank, you have Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, and beyond that, you have the Caucasus and the Middle East. And obviously, cannot ignore the fact that beyond Pakistan, you have India, and India and Pakistan have had their issues for a long time. That, in my opinion, and the opinion of many Afghans, have impacted Afghanistan's situation overall. Yes. But so have many others. Going back to the first period, Ellen, I think that. What we do understand and what we need to learn is that Afghan, Afghans have the capacity to be an independent nation state and to run their own affairs, mostly according to their own will. So this period 1920 to let's say 19, the late 1970s is a period mm -hmm. of sovereignty taking root in Afghanistan, of Afghan building up their own capacities, their own leadership style and model, but also borrowing from others. And also, obviously, as a developing and poor country, one of the poorest in the world, poorest meaning that we know now that we are very rich underground. And that's something yes. we will discuss later. We have mm -hmm. uh, huge deposits of sought after minerals. But right now, none of that has been exploited. So it's still a very poor country that this country uh, has played an important role uh, by being somewhat, remaining somewhat neutral and non-aligned for many years and carrying out a sort of balanced foreign policy uh, where uh, during the Cold War, for example, uh, we both had relations with the West and the East. We obviously were forced, and I don't want to go into that story, but we were pushed into the Soviet camp in terms of our needs for military modernization after the United States rebuked, rebuked us and, and, and denied us mm -hmm. access to U.S. Uh, assistance for their own strategic reasons at the time in the 1950s. And then we also had the period of a decade of democratic experimentation in Afghanistan in the 1960s to early 70s with under a modernist Islamic constitution, giving men and women equal rights, both in all sectors of life, including politics and the economy wow. and access to education uh, and to a certain level, even freedom of expression at the time. But unfortunately, that experimentation didn't last. And there is one lesson from that. The lesson is we failed to manage our nascent young democracy in the 60s properly. We did not lay a foundation that could have been solid enough to support a, a growing demo democratic system in the country. And even though we had visionaries and we had intellectuals during throughout this period who emerged in Afghanistan and were given space to express themselves and uh, help the country develop in its government run as a modern government uh, and capacities and careers and professionalism were introduced to Afghanistan at the time uh, there were failures of leadership and management and you will see this occur and reoccur over and over again until today uh, so I think that that period of calm in Afghanistan, of security, of peace, and um, gradual development is looked at now as the golden age of the country. 
compared to what happened afterwards. Uh, But the golden age wasn't without fault. And the golden age had obviously its problems and its challenges, both domestically, regionally. Domestically, I think we we went through a period of uh, sort of dictatorial rule. And then, as I said, a democratic, more open society. Uh, which ended in 1973 and then again in 1978 by a communist group. Uh, Regionally, I think we did not do a very good job of balancing our relations with our key neighbors, especially Pakistan and Iran to Mm. some extent. And we, I think, over-trusted, if that is a word I can use, the Soviets. Mm. Uh, And we didn't really uh, fully grasp the... uh, the, 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 the goals and the strategy that the Soviets were pursuing at the time in, Af- in Afghanistan through their Afghan agents who were part of two uh, pro-communist, pro-Moscow uh, uh, political parties with a lot of influence within the military, which obviously caused the coup which toppled the monarchy that uh, had been the anchor uh, of peace and stability in Afghanistan for such a long time. So those are the lessons from that period. Quickly, the second period was devastating, um, especially the communist coup. Uh, that is the beginning of conflict in Afghanistan, domestic, regional, international. Uh, it, it gets the major powers involved. The Soviets invade Afghanistan in 1979. The communist government is unable to manage the affairs because it's facing a major rebellion. Uh, people overall are not uh, paying attention to, uh, you know, they're not, they're not uh, uh, basically respecting and agreeing to the communist rule. They pick up our arms. It turns into a rebellion, a national rebellion and a resistance movement. It gets the region involved. Pakistan becomes the, basically the, uh, the base for activity against the Soviets and the communist regime. The United States many other countries in the Islamic world and Europe and even the People's Republic of China get involved in this anti-Soviet covert operation that helps the Afghans fight the Soviets but denies the Afghans the right to basically run their own affairs. And this is where we start losing sovereignty. This is where we start Mm. losing control over our own future and destiny. And this is where it becomes sort of diffused, where not only new factions emerge, but new factions are then linked to outside powers, and outside powers uh, pursue their own agendas. And those agendas at times are contradictory, and they are agendas that are sort of fueling proxy conflicts. And Afghanistan gets caught up in that. And we were caught Mm -hmm. up in that for a long time. Some people say even until now. So phase two has a lot of errors, mistakes that were made, uh, loss of sovereignty, loss of control, but a sense of uh, being able to defeat a superpower, a sense of pride in trying to save and, and, and free your country. At the same time, uh, a growing, uh, the growing influence of regional and non-regional countries in the affairs of Afghanistan. And the inability of the Afghans at the end of the day when the Soviets had left to find a settlement, a political settlement. 
acceptable to the majority of Afghans. And the country falls into a civil war. And the civil war is costly. And the civil war leads to the emergence of the Taliban around the 1990s. And Pakistan is an influential player. Saudi Arabia, Iran, all these countries are influential players. Uh, the West is looking from a distance, doesn't get involved. Terrorist groups take root and find a, a home in Afghanistan. Uh, there's a civil war that continues and a resistance that continues uh, up until 9-11. Um, at that point, obviously, uh, we end the second phase of Afghanistan's instability. The lessons are that you don't let a country become a failed state. A failed state then, then can become a brewing ground for uh, non-state okay. actors like terrorists and many others. Uh, and also, you, the lesson is you need to resolve the problem as soon as you have the means and the political will and the opportunity to do so. And instead of letting this wound fester longer and become more problematic and more challenging, which is what happened in Afghanistan. But 9-11 was sort of a turning point. It was a historic moment. It was tragic, but then it refocused attention on Afghanistan. The last 20 years, as we, we call it, the emergence of a Islamic Republic in Afghanistan, another constitution. It's, it was supposed to be stability. It was supposed to be development. It was supposed to be democracy building, human rights, women's rights. It was supposed to be an infusion of billions of dollars of external money in order to rebuild the country and do what we were supposed to do back in the 1990s, which we failed to do. And we did try our best, I think. I went back to Afghanistan to help and serve in any way I could. Several things happened. I think that, again, we did not have, uh, Afghans were not in total control of their destiny. I think that major strategic decisions were taken outside of Afghanistan without much Afghan consultation. I think that the war that could have and should have ended any moment and this conflict with the Taliban could have and should have ended at any moment after 2002 uh, right. was prolonged and delayed and turned into a never-ending war, as they called it, a forever war. Yeah. And many benefited from it. Many died as a result of it. Many became enemies as a result of it. And the whole situation got out of control. And other countries who initially were supportive of this period uh, again realized that they needed to readjust their positions like Russia, China, Iran, Pakistan, and many others. So we lost that consensus that existed after 9-11. And the Afghan people obviously were faced with a democracy that was seen as somewhat unfortunately hmm. false and fraudulent, highly fraudulent. They lost trust in a democratic system. They lost trust in a leadership that was highly corrupt to the point where we don't know how much money has been taken out of that country. Uh, and nobody has been brought to justice yet. And I hope they will one day. And they have to answer for their, for their deeds. Uh, and we faced a situation where um, the work that was done in Afghanistan uh, was extensive. The generosity was absolutely unprecedented, but the result and what was left behind and the legacy is very shallow.
and it's not really deep and rooted. So we are faced with, we faced a country that at the end was basically a house of cards that crumbled and, and, and collapsed. And the army that we had spent so much money on and the air force and all of that didn't really amount to a really sustainable project that could have faced the challenges. And the most important thing is we had a chance to probably uh, prevent the kind of collapse that we saw on August 15, 2021, and maybe aim for something less traumatic uh, and maybe a bit more uh, consensus driven uh, by agreeing to a political settlement. But there were hands and forces that prevented that from happening for their own reasons. And so we lost every opportunity and chance we had for a political settlement up until August of 2021. And that is a tragedy, but obviously now we are in a new phase and I think we will talk about the new phase now. But the lesson from the last 20 years is when you go and fix a problem, you have to do it right. When you go and spend money, you have to be accountable and you, you do not turn it into a, a, a sort of kleptocracy. Uh, and when you have a war in a conflict, you have to use every opportunity to end it with a political settlement that may not be 100% perfect, but that needs to end carnage and put the country back on a stable footing and bring everyone under the tent. So the big challenge now is how to bring everyone under the tent once again in Afghanistan. Well, thank you so much, uh, Sheikh Omar, uh, Ambassador Samad. I think I just listened in this first segment and I wanted to let you start off this podcast that way because I think it was so useful for you to give us the grounding for the next segments that are going to come, which are the rough transition period and then the way forward in the following segments. Thank you so much. Sure. We're back in the second segment with Ambassador Omar Samad. Cher Omar, uh, we're going to talk about in the second segment, rough transition period and what's at stake. And you'll tell me which period you'd like to talk about, perhaps. Yeah, Ellen, thank you. Um, so this transition period that we are talking about, obviously, can either cover the whole 20 years since the American NATO Western uh, intervention in Afghanistan post 9-11, Mm -hmm. Or, as I would like to, uh, if you don't mind, maybe shorten it to the last 10 or 12 years. Okay. Uh, when, at a certain point, when the war was at its highest peak, when under President Obama, there were several surges that took place, if you remember. Yes. 
Yes, and they do. And the number of Western troops in Afghanistan reached almost 150,000, plus right. at least two to 300,000 Afghan military and, and, and police forces. Um, mm. We don't have an exact number because na- the numbers were always somewhat fudged for corruption <laughs> reasons. But mm-hmm. uh, it, there was a time when under President Karzai, there was a realization that this war is not going the way we want it. And that yeah. Western strategists, whether military or diplomatic, political, uh, were continuously pl- uh, promising an end to war within six months to a year. Within six months to a year, we're going to turn the corner, we're going to end this war. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, I remember in 2009 or 2010, if I'm not mistaken, at the Lisbon-NATO summit, it was officially announced by President Obama and others that they wanted to end the war. And it was officially agreed that the the Western engagement, the military mission itself, and the involvement of Western forces in Afghanistan's war was going to end by 2014, and that by that time, mm-hmm. they were going to transfer all responsibilities to trained Afghans. Um, well, uh, initially, around 2010-11, there was an attempt at opening the door to discussions with the Taliban in Doha, Qatar. Initially, it was in mm-hmm. the UAE, but then it moved to Doha, Qatar. Uh, mm-hmm. And there was also a, a bit of rivalry between the UAE and Qatar over who was going to host it. But anyway, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that did not really pan out and it did not accomplish anything because there were some technicalities that emerged that prevented that politi- that particular process from moving forward. So it was put on hold, uh, back burner, basically, and the war continued. Uh, and, you know, the military leaders were always promising an end and a victory within six months to a year. And it never happened. Not only did it not happen, but over time, the Taliban gradually gained momentum and uh, occupied more land and, uh, and more territories in Afghanistan. And as the war progressed and as we started fighting, I guess, not just the Taliban, but it started mm. to, you know, it became blurred as to who we were fighting. When mm. we went into a village, we didn't know anymore whether we are actually apprehending or prosecuting or basically killing a villager or a talib or an accomplice or who. That really turned, in my opinion, the war around. The tide turned. Get- can I ask you just, to, sorry yeah. to interrupt, can I ask you, um, did the Taliban gain those hearts and minds at this point? Was this a point that was ripe for the, the population Afghans accepting this Taliban rule in their villages it's in around the country? very good question. Initially, no. Over time, mm. yes. It took uh-huh. 20 years or maybe 15 wow. for the Taliban to start uh, winning hearts and minds, but not the kind of hearts and minds that are totally committed to their cause. It was basically Mm -hmm. a defensive mechanism. It was basically a way to show their disgruntlement and their displeasure at how the government and its foreign allies were conducting the war and how governance was so badly carried out and that how corruption 
was hurting people and how the country had become basically a kleptocracy run by several mafias the mafia of drugs the mafia of guns the mafia of technocrats the mafia of warlords the mafia of new technolords as i call them mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. anyone who could lay their hands on resources and money grabbed it and run with it and so that really turned the afghan people off and then the at least two or three really badly handled elections that also turned the afghan people off the level of fraud that was evident in those elections whether they were presidential especially or even parliamentary elections parliament became a den of mostly not all but mostly thieves uh, who just collected money right and left just because they were in position to do so um so it became a dysfunctional government and there was no there was a t- lot of talk about good governance and rule of law and uh, human rights but then maybe the human rights of people in the cities and the new generation that was being educated and opportunities were given to them were being respected and were being somewhat you know um Uh, adhere to but the human rights of the average local villager man woman or child was non-existent and nobody knew what was happening out there every day every night as fighting was going on how many people there are stories coming out now of the atrocities that have been committed yeah. by all sides and i'm not trying to say there was just one side or the other by all sides sure. because the other side also obviously had to resort to violence and to even terrorism and so yeah. the afghan people became a victim of terror brought upon by different factions and groupings within the government and outside the government and within the taliban as well and other allied groups terrorist groups in afghanistan So can we imagine just for a moment how the impact is going to be on future generations right of of Afghans well, you, you, you know that were going up during this one, time it's interesting you have one set of this future generation that fled after August of 2021 you have tens of thousands of the young mostly urbanites those educated those who had a, a job and an opportunity to work uh, and benefited from the system who felt that they couldn't live there anymore and they fled and they are now all over the world including the United States. So now there's a real brain drain would you say Omar? Absolutely and this is probably the fifth uh brain drain that Afghanistan has been experiencing since mm-hmm. 1978. Um and then you have people in the villages the youth the rural youth they were totally torn between what they saw as mm. a system that did not benefit them but that was telling them that basically this is the way forward this is the future and a system locally that was still very traditional in some ways even extreme and that was radicalized in some areas and mm. that did not really that collided with what we were trying to build in urban Afghanistan. And so you had this collision of rural and urban and this inability mm-hmm. 
to understand each other or to come to terms with each other. And this inability to bring everyone under the tent, to discuss our issues, and then to discuss it with our region and our neighbors as well at a certain point. We were unable- I have to, to say, if I may, if I may, you, you talked in the first segment about sovereignty. Um, is there a Afghan unity possible, uh, knowing what you know about the composition of Afghanistan? And this now this transition period, how do we unify a nation that has borders and a history and somewhat a common language, can I say? Uh, are, are all Afghans going to feel that they can be included in this nation building project now that the occupiers or foreign powers have left the country? Well, you see, the reality is that we are a multi-ethnic, multi-linguistic, multi-religious country. Uh, but it is re also a reality for that for hundreds of years, whether we have liked it or not, we have lived in a more or less unified fashion. And we have a lot to share. And we have a lot of, um, you know, uh, the, the, the lines of division have over all these generations become somewhat uh, more, less, less, less visible. And, mm -hmm. and so there was a lot more inclusivity and, and um, between the, the, the different ethnic and, and linguistic groups. Uh, you t most Afghans are products of mixed marriages, for example, but there are some who are not. And there are some mm -hmm. who are not. So today, what has happened as a result of 45 years of continuous conflict and displacement and poverty and loss of hope, uh, is that the fact that there, there are some communities that have become very extreme in their views. So there are some communities who feel that that Afghan unity has been eroded and has weakened and that, so, that, mm. that sense of sovereignty as a nation state no longer exists or should no longer exist because they feel like they cannot live next door to the next which is a very dangerous situation for Afghanistan because unlike other examples in the world like the Balkans or other places, uh, Afghanistan is a very different uh, entity. It's a very different society. Mm -hmm. And you cannot delineate and separate communities that easily, even at the village level, even at the district level or provincial level. Uh, and there's a lot of mix and so where do you start and where do you end? So this is why, in my would opinion... Would it be, sorry, would it be sort of like a city-state uh, sort of entity uh, that could maybe run local governance? Maybe this is the way it's been run? Well, there's uh, a lot of research being done. There's a lot of research mm -hmm. and a lot of talk about how the system can be decentralized mm -hmm. because it has been highly centralized for a long time. And that sure. kind, that that model of centralization, high, high centralization, has not worked well for Afghanistan, especially as a result of the conflict that has changed society. There's no longer the society of the 1950s. So right. today we need to look at uh, an Afghan model, not something we yes. borrow. Some people are very simplistically talking about the Swiss model and the, I don't know, this the, the Austrian model <laughs> and this and that. They just don't understand what they're talking about. But uh, the reality is we need to create an Afghan model that works for Afghanistan. We have to start right. with actually a discourse. We need to 
sit around the table and have this discussion. And this is this is one of the, in my opinion, one of the most important duties and responsibilities that falls on the Taliban today, who are in control of the, the country. And we will talk about that in your third segment. But yes, again, coming back to this 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 period of transition, yes, it could have been handled differently. It should have been handled sure. differently. But there were powers mm-hmm. outside of Afghanistan from Washington to Europe to other places with in different interests and agendas that did not mm-hmm. see basically, uh, I, I don't think they saw the, the, the realities that they were dealing with. And they and they assumed that, that with sheer force and power and money that they could change mm-hmm. things. And it did not happen. And, mm-hmm. and it cannot happen when you have a population that picks up arms or a population that is divided. Uh, and 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 the divisiveness that Ashraf Ghani and his government brought to Afghanistan will stay for a long time. Uh, he, uh, instead of unifying the country or uh, or pacifying the country through not war, not through fighting, not through killing, but not through social engineering as he he thinks he he, he wanted to do, but mm-hmm. through other means, through uh, you know peaceful means, through reconciliation means. We should have done this. We didn't do it. And yeah. today it's upon the Taliban to pick up that that piece of uh, work and then work on that with others, with others, and, and, and learn that lesson from the past that you cannot rule over this country the way that others try to do so. Uh, How important, that, Omar? How important would the role of religion be in this? Because I believe the country is united at least under one religious banner. Is that right? Well, a religious banner, uh, 99% with the two denominations of majority Sunni and a minority Shia, very important minority mm-hmm. Shia mm-hmm. in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. who have lived next to each other peacefully for hundreds of years. And yes. uh, uh, despite attempts by spoilers to uh, including mm-hmm. the so-called Daesh or IS that is trying yes. to division, uh, uh, this phenomena that uh, is somewhat still uh, mysterious. We do not know exactly who's behind it and who's using these tools to uh, to create problems for Afghanistan or other countries in the region. But uh, having said this, I think that uh, the Afghan people, those different communities, religious and ethnic, have and can and want to live next to each other. There are always obviously those outliers and those who sure. feel like that is not the right model. They have mm-hmm. the right to, to express themselves. They have the right to engage or not engage. But nobody has the right to again kick off another round of conflict in my opinion. And so what is the best way forward is I think what you want to discuss in your third segment. Uh, But I want to leave this segment by just saying that there are many lessons, not just for Afghans in this Afghanistan story. There are many lessons for others, including the United States, that was the biggest donor and contributor to Afghanistan and tried to do good and send tens of thousands of its young men and women to serve. And others in Europe and other countries who tried to do good. But the ISAF forces too, you know. But they have to be learned earnestly, honestly, uh, with with a sense of realism and not trying to uh, basically rewrite history 
history has been written and we cannot That's rewrite right. history and revise history to serve our own narratives. We need to use what we have and we need to not repeat the mistakes and we need to do what's good moving forward, knowing that there's a war in Europe right now going on and that the war in Afghanistan ended, but the world is still a very tense world and there are rivalries that are going to become more intense over time, unfortunately. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Cher Omar. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll let end this segment here and we'll go on to the third segment. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we're back in the final segment with Ambassador Omar Samad. Uh, Cher Omar, here we are in the final segment of this podcast. Thank you so much. And thank you to all our listeners tuning in from 57 countries. Um, we're now going to finish off this podcast uh, with your reflections and on the way forward and choices and opportunities, and region and great power roles that we started to just touch on in the last, uh, in the second segment. So. What is the way forward? I mean, there's no miracle or magic recipe uh, for Afghanistan, as we both know, it's very rich in history, has its place uh, on the, I would say the great power landscape or the chessboard. Uh, you mentioned its rich resources in the beginning. Uh, how, how do you see Afghanistan moving forward now and hopefully with no more invasions, no more uh, occupiers no more. I mean, this is the history of Afghanistan, shall we say. How, how do we see Afghanistan going forward? Well, I mean, uh, there are diff different scenarios at play right now, and there are different people looking at it uh, from different angles and portraying um, a different uh, future and in, in, uh, developments one way or the other. So um, uh, I'm going to step a bit away from those particular politicized scenarios uh, mm -hmm. or agenda-driven scenarios. And I'm going to give you uh, a sense of, try to give you a sense of uh, the, the change that took place and how fundamental this change is actually. Um, and the opportunities that exist as well as the challenges. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we're almost a year into this, this change. Right. A few right. days from now, uh, we will yes. be celebrating the first anniversary of the fall of Kabul and the retreat of the Americans wow. uh, from Afga Afghanistan and NATO as well. And uh, mm. the emergence, re-emergence, phase two, version two of the Taliban <laughs> in Afghanistan, uh, knowing that phase one was 1994, 95 to 2001. Right, um, right. This time, the Taliban have learned their lessons. So let's remember, we're talking about everybody else. The Taliban have learned many lessons along the way. They're trying to apply them. I don't know how well, to what extent mm. do they really are in touch with Afghanistan's history, society, complexities, you know, the diversity that exists in Afghanistan, the different the generational changes that have taken place over the last 20 years or so. 
the technology. I was going to say, uh, what? Who are these Taliban? Just for our listeners, who are these Taliban? Are they people that have been all this time in Afghanistan, or have well, they come from they, the outside? You know, there's, bit, there's, there's been a lot of talk about uh, whether they are the same Taliban or have they changed? What extent have they changed? <laughs> Obviously, they have changed. There are people mm. within the Taliban who are thinking somewhat differently, and there are those who haven't. So it's a mix. It's a mix of uh, sort of. Uh, uh, I would say orthodox Taliban, let's call them, uh, and uh, reformed Taliban uh, and nationalist Taliban versus fundamentalist Taliban. Uh, also, uh, externally linked Taliban versus patriotic Taliban and forward looking Taliban. Are the young generations? Sorry, are the young uh, generations? It's, it's, it's not really divided along generation lines. But okay. I, I think you find a mix of both generations as well as regions, as well as exposure, their, ex their own experiences. Uh, and so yeah. you have all of this within the Taliban. Um, and that is a change from what used to be. But at the end of the day, the question is who calls the shots? Who decides and, hmm. and who mm -hmm. are they and what vision do they represent versus others within the Taliban framework? And what we have seen over the last 11 months, at least, versus what we had seen previously during the negotiation stage that took place between the United States and the yes. Taliban, and at one stage at the end involved some minions or some uh, representatives of the Ghani government who were there basically to delay the whole process. Unfortunately, most mm -hmm. of them, not all of them, most of them were there to delay the process uh, instead mm -hmm. of find a quick settlement, uh, but one that would be acceptable to most Afghans, it would be inclusive. We failed to do that uh, during the negotiations. Mm -hmm. But the Americans signed an agreement in 2020 with the Taliban uh, on their withdrawal. And, uh, and, and also on some other issues that had to do with the transition, that had to do with ceasefire, that had to do with uh, political talks, and that had to do with basically coming up with a new Islamic order or a new Afghan political order. So mm -hmm. most of that was somewhat accomplished, right or wrong, and people have different views about it. But the mm -hmm. last part didn't take place the way we expected it. And so instead of having a political settlement, an inclusive government, in a new roadmap towards a new political order, we ended up with the Taliban in the driver's seat. Now, it happened for a variety of reasons. There are all kinds of theories and conspiracy theories about this. <laughs> and I'm going to avoid that and just say mm -hmm. that we are now in a country, in a situation where one group is in charge. But within that group, as I explained earlier, you have different tendencies. Okay. And within those tendencies, at the higher level, higher echelons, you have people who seem to still be um, connected to old thinking. So when it comes to the issue of education for girls, secondary education for girls, we are facing a huge dilemma that should have been resolved by now, that hasn't been, and has created a lot of angst and frustration and questions about what the motivations are and who is running this policy and why and what are they trying to get out of this the same what have been your takeaways on that particular issue what have you heard 
Well, I mean, that, that particular issue uh, uh, has divided uh, the Taliban, but the Taliban are very good at keeping their own internal unity and not sort of letting this get out of control. Will it get out of control? I don't know. But the, the problem is that uh, the country and the population does not like it, doesn't want it. The world doesn't like it, doesn't want it. But there are other issues as well. There are issues of whether the Taliban are aiming for a Taliban-style government, and are mm. they going to allow others to be part of a future dispensation, and are they moving towards a consensus-built consensus uh, uh, process, or are they moving toward uh, some type of a Taliban grab on power? Um, mm. this, this is a key question right now. Uh, they call themselves a caretaker government, which sort of okay. gives the illusion that it's an interim government. Mm -hmm. uh, there are no clear uh, initiatives on a political roadmap uh, to become more inclusive, but they... Will, will there be elections, Omar? There is no talk about elections whatsoever. So at this point, I think that the elections are premature. Okay. I think that they have to be part of a grand... Uh, agenda for discussion uh, and everybody needs to hear each other's opinions. What is missing and what is needed more than anything else is a, uh, a participatory uh, consultative process uh, for representation from various ethnic, religious, social and civil society including women uh, yes. process of engagement internally on what type of governance do we want and how do we allow other communities to feel that they are part of this governance system, a new emerging governance system. Obviously, it has to be Islamic, but Islamic too has different definitions and different interpretations. And so we need to come to terms on a an agreed upon common understanding of the Islamic interpretation of governance as well. And on rights. That's very as well. interesting. And on yes, how it's very interesting. Rights. Yes. How how what what kind of models are there that uh, Afghans such as yourself or Afghan scholars are looking at in the Islamic world? Uh, are there models that could be well, of applied? There are models. There, there are a variety of models stretching from Morocco to Indonesia and Malaysia. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, one of the lessons we've learned is that we need to probably study other models, but we don't need to adopt them and think that right. Right. they can work and can be applicable to Afghanistan society. Mm -hmm. We need to, at the end of the day, come up with our own. And our own does not need to be influenced by a certain school of, like a certain madrasa system or another uh, Islamic sort of theological system that cannot be grasped or understood by the majority of Afghans. Afghanistan has evolved over time with its own ways. Yes, there are differences between rural thinking and urban. Yes, there are differences between the different madrasa systems. And yes, there's a difference between what these this clergy learn over the last 45 years, mostly in Pakistani-based or Iranian-based madrasas and religious mm. schools, versus what used to be traditionally Afghan madrasas. So we need to come to terms about all of this, and this requires 
a discussion. This requires consultation. This requires a consensus building process over time. And that is what's lacking right now. And if the Taliban do not decide on these issues, I think that you're going to see more problems and challenges facing the Afghans. The other big problem is the economy. The other big issue is mm. the fact that the country is impoverished, there's no money, there's no more aid coming in, and that the humanitarian crisis that has been set is really hurting millions of Afghans, and it has turned Afghanistan again into a, unfortunately, uh, you know, a country that is dependent on the most basic of foreign assistance for food and for basic needs uh, uh, in the health sector as well. So we is, need to turn this around. Me, is, 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 is there an economic model that would work for Afghanistan? I mean, Afghanistan is very rich, as you mentioned in the first segment. Um, what type I of economic the model? Best model? I think the best model, looking at the last hundred years, the best model for Afghanistan is to take gradual, calculated steps towards self-reliance, both on the agricultural mm -hmm. se sec sector, right. as well as natural resources, minerals and others, and making sure that they right. come up with, but in order to do so, you have to be recognized. You have to have legitimacy. Exactly. So what is lacking right now exactly. is legitimacy, both domestically, yes, there is a certain level of legitimacy that the Taliban have, but it is not a nationally endorsed legitimacy. And they mm -hmm. do, and they lack international legitimacy, and and, and so they are. Who's not recognized? Who at this point? They are not. No, not not a single country or international institution has recognized it as the de jure government of Afghanistan. So they remain a de facto administration, and that obviously is not good for Afghanistan, and it's not good for getting back, you know, the economy, working on the economy bringing in investment, putting people to work, right. working on livelihoods. So I right. am afraid that if we continue on this path, it's going to further isolate Afghanistan. It's going to further punish the mm. population and it's going to further create a division within the, the country and the probability of again, uh, armed resistance or armed uh, groups trying to find space, including right. terrorist groups. And so sure. we need to avoid sure. this type of uh, collapse back into a failed state status right. and an economic right. collapse that would really also push millions of people out of the country again, which would be a devastation. Can we imagine? A disaster. Sure, sorry. Can, can, can we imagine, for example, an economic investment uh, conference instead of a donor conference for Afghanistan. Can we well, one day hope that, that after you have gained legitimacy and recognition by the Poli international community, political sentiment, right? And a recognized government can go and call for investment or, uh, you know, uh, sort of normal foreign aid. At this point, uh, uh, mostly the United Nations and major NGOs are providing mm -hmm. basic livelihood foodstuff for the population that is hungry. And the population that right. needs healthcare. That's basically right. all that's happening. So, just to conclude, because uh, we're we're almost to the end of this third segment, what do you see in the region, and how do you see? Yes. So, 
of course, you know, uh, as you know, I'm very active in economic development and sustainability and green. And is there a way that we can jumpstart this Afghan economy with some some innovations? It must be covered, blanketed in in sun in the south at least. Is there is there anything that we can do to try to infuse and give uh, Afghan hope in their new economy, their new uh, country, their new yeah. national unity? It, what, what would you say were the next steps forward, maybe well, the, the next 12 months? The geography that has been so sensitive and has uh, at times helped and at times hurt the country can <laughs> has to be turned into a productive and a positive and um, a, a connecting uh, sort of uh, hub for economic prosperity and um, growth. Afghanistan remaining unstable, remaining in conflict, remaining a failed state is not going to only hurt the country and its people. It's also going to hurt the region and it's going to be so. You know, this is where things get complicated because you have, as I said at the very beginning, conflicting agendas that look at Afghanistan sort of not as a an area, a space for um, cooperation, let's say, and growth, but look at it as a space for rivalry and conflict and as a battlefield. And we need to change that paradigm. We need to change that. Mm-hmm in a way that benefits everyone one way or the other to some extent and that there's a win-win outcome at the very end and not a lose-lose outcome uh, and then you have the great power rivalries beyond the regional rivalries mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that also are yes. impacting Afghanistan and so you have the war in mm-hmm. Ukraine but that, how does that impact Russian calculations about Afghanistan American yes. Western calculations about the region um, you know, and yeah. how does it impact smaller countries in China at the end of the day, which is obviously a main, uh, you know, entity, a, a party that cannot be ignored uh, and exactly. is right there next door with uh, plans exactly. to expand its, uh, uh, you know, its uh, economic corridors uh, uh, yes. into into Eurasia and beyond. Uh, yes. Uh, has a Could this be beneficial that, for, for Afghanistan? So there's a part of this that can be beneficial to Afghanistan. It does, not need to be, it does not need to be somewhat countered in a way that could hurt everyone. So we need to find those mm-hmm. win-win solutions as we move forward. Absolutely. And, and realize that uh, uh, the more the more Afghanistan is isolated, the more Afghanistan becomes a failed state, the more divided Afghanistan becomes. Uh, it will create space for bad elements and it will become a threat to the region and beyond and to its own people. Absolutely. And that we need to change all of that. So this is where we stand today. And this is where we need to focus on solutions and ideas that work for all the main parties involved um, and make sure that they all feel that there's something to benefit. There's something, a stake, that they have a stake in the in stability and peace 
and in prosperity in Afghanistan and its region. Thank you, Ambassador Omad Samad, Sheikh Omar, thank you so much. We will have to speak again because as you know, I follow these issues very closely and I'm so privileged that you took the time to speak with me today. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much, Ellen. Thank you for your time and thank you and good luck to the Trocadero Forum uh, and uh, to all that you, you do uh, in order to help Thank you so uh, much. Raise awareness uh, across the world. Thank Indeed. You. I, I, I do my best. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day.